Welcome to the 122nd episode of Two Writers Sling and Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated senior writer, former ESPN columnist, and the author of multiple New York Times bestsellers. The music you're listening to is Croissants from the great MC White Owl. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from sports writing to screenwriting to political analysis to dog fancy essays to whatever genre I'm thinking of. And today's guest is Greg Doyle sports columnist for the Indianapolis Star, and, like me, someone whose career is overflowing with regret. Once upon a time, Greg was a columnist for CBSSports.com, and he was your loud, hot-takes guy who had an opinion for everything, you're dumb, you suck, get a life, that sort of genre. And then, not that long ago, he had an epiphany, and he changed. Now, for my money, he's one of the best newspaper columnists in the country. So what happened? Why the shift? Let's find out right now on Two Writers, Singing Yang. All right, Greg, thanks for doing this. I feel like our careers have paralleled a lot, but we haven't been, I don't think we've shared many press boxes in our days, even though our, our, our timelines are pretty similar. Uh, yeah, I don't know that we've ever been in the same room uh, together, but I will tell you that I thought, I, I thought we would um, when I was in college, uh, University of Florida, the way that works back when I was there, you had kind of a conveyor belt. You got on the conveyor belt and when it was your turn, you were the editor. When it was your turn, you were the managing editor. Yeah. But you had to go through a ring, a dog and pony show, you, an, a job interview with five advisors. Uh, cause it was an independent, independent paper, but they would have advisors to kind of make the decisions. Anyway, point of all this is that when it was my turn on the conveyor belt to be the editor or the managing editor, one of those, I competed against nobody. Nobody ran against me because I was clearly <laughs> going to win. And so nobody ran against me. Well, here's how cocky I was that. After the hour-long job interview was done, at one point they said to me, Greg, we're concerned with your attitude putting you in charge of the alligator. Fifteen years from now, I don't want to look back and say, yeah, I'm the one who did that. And I said to them, well, 15 years from now, when I'm at Sports Illustrated, do you want to be the one that said I didn't let that guy be managing editor of my little rotten college paper? So I thought I was going to SI in college, and I won that election, by the way, against nobody by a vote of three to two. (laughs) The empty suit got two votes. That's how impressive I was that I almost lost to nobody. The swing, the swing vote, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg liked me, apparently. That's awesome. Well, you know, it's interesting because uh, you and I, I feel like we're, when I read your sort of self-flagellation, it's very <laughs> similar to mine. It's really similar to mine. Like, I was you. I really was. I went to University of Delaware, and I knew I was going to be editor of the paper, and I was insanely, insufferably cocky and arrogant and thought I was the shit and told everyone that I was a shit and told everyone I would write for Sports Illustrated and I was going to do all these things and blah, blah, blah. I look back in shame. I mean, I look back in shame at how big of a dickhead I was. You seem to also, I mean, have you gotten past it at that point or do you still sort of look back and think, oh, what the fuck? Whenever I think about it, like now, um, I am, I'm I'm embarrassed. I'm ashamed and I, I was out of control and when I... This is back in the day when if you were at a newspaper for a while and you left, the newspaper, if they liked you, would give you kind of a mock page in your honor. Like, it, obviously, they never printed it, but there was like a mock. I'm not even sure what the technology was in 1993. But when I left the Tampa Tribune for the Miami Herald, they gave me a mock page, and the entire mock page is blasting my ego. The entire thing. Like, there's a story and a news story and a sidebar and a column, you know, just about me leaving, just making fun of me like a roast. 
But every joke was the same, that I was so cocky. So I was out of control. And I speak at colleges and high schools uh, now, and that's one of the first things I tell them is, here's what I did. Don't do it. I get it that, you know, you see your name in the paper or you see your name online or maybe your picture runs with it online and, and it can go to your head. And I can just tell you that people, the world doesn't like people like that, speaking from experience. It's an interesting lesson to teach because we both had pretty good careers. Like I actually did end up working for Sports Illustrated. You've had this huge national career, like, but I would never advise someone to go about it that way because I feel like it's just not, it's not worth it. Whatever, whatever you gain in whatever you lose in just being thought of as an asshole by everybody. Which is why you and I are, are effective tools. And I use that word. Uh, yeah, we I are tools. I, we are effective yeah. tools. That is true. <laughs> Advisedly. Uh, because it, why would you listen to somebody who's humble and meek and has been humble and meek their whole life saying, Hey guys, don't be cocky. Okay. It's like if you're going to talk to someone about the perils of drinking and driving, get someone up there who's been involved in a crash. I mean, I'm going to listen to that guy. And right. my for five, ten years, I was a crash. And I, I almost got fired at, at CBS once, but probably almost got fired three or four times. But I know I almost got fired once. Almost is the wrong word. I was told I am one episode away from being fired. And my episodes always centered around how cocky I was. And I thought I could say anything and write anything and do anything on radio shows around the country or whatever. And I just, I, I was in that stupid mix of people that, that think that if you're good, you better tell people you're good or they won't know it. And that's how you look at the NFL today. You look at all pro sports today. Nobody who's any good doesn't want, like, if you're a leader on a team, now the, 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 the rogue quote, the, the, the cliche quote is as a leader on this team, dot, dot, dot. How about you just be a leader on the team without telling everybody every sentence you're a leader on the team? But that's how kind of I was as someone who's young and up and coming. You better let everybody know you're out young, up and coming or you won't get that chance. And that's just stupid. Right. I agree with you. You wrote, um, I mean, you wrote, you sent me a column. You wrote it was about Grayson Allen when he was a Duke and sort of his cockiness. And you compared it to your cockiness a little bit. And you said, you know, this was six years ago. I was at CBSSports.com. Readers who knew me, they most likely knew me as a ranting, raving, hot take artist who is likely to write anything for CBS, say anything on the radio, tweet anything on Twitter. Readers accused me of playing a role, being the bad guy for attention. They thought I was pretending I wasn't. When you were writing stuff at that point in your life, were you consciously thinking, okay, this is going to get a reaction? This is going to get a reaction? Not really. Um, in fact, no. And it always got a reaction, always. And I was always kind of blown back, especially if the reaction was negative. I was always kind of, Greg, why'd you do that this time? Why'd you do it again? Why? It, 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 as dumb as that sounds, because I'm not a stupid human being, but I just wrote things that I felt. And, and I did feel them. I wasn't playing a role. I really was. I felt the stuff and then I'd get the reaction and go, Oh yeah, that's right. That's going to happen. And that's why I wrote what I wrote about, about Grayson and to Grayson. And he, I, I saw him a couple years later and said, Grayson, I, you don't know me, but I wrote about you, but he'd read it and he said it registered a little bit because I was, what I was telling Grayson, well, I'll tell you now is that when you're out of control, you don't really know you're out of control in the moment until the moment happens. And then you're like beating yourself up over being out of control. And that's what, if you see Grayson, I know we're not talking about him, but. You see Grayson after he has kicked or stomped somebody and he's in a tirade on the bench. And I think a lot of people don't realize what they're watching. I did because I've, I've lived that life. That tirade is that he's mad at himself. Like he can't believe he can't stop kicking people and stomping on people and being dirty. He hates that person and can't stop doing it. And that's kind of what I was doing back at CBS back in the day. And now I'm the exact opposite. It's really kind of embarrassing, but um, I remember when I was. And my apology tour is long, and I've apologized to Dan Levitard for this. But I remember thinking when I was at CBS that he was a homer. 
when he was riding for Miami. And he, he was not, to be very clear, he was not. But he wasn't just blowing everything up left and right like I was. And so I thought, well, he's not as tough as I am. He's a homer. He's a Miami guy. Well, now that I'm in Indianapolis and I recognize what's going on here is that, yeah, I'm writing about local teams, but I'm writing for local readers. And if they're upset with their team or if they're upset with New England Patriots for cheating them or if they're upset about something, 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 then I got your back. And it doesn't mean that I am rooting for the Colts, but if if you feel wronged, I got you. And it looks like a Homer thing, and maybe it is a Homer thing, but I've become the softest marshmallow in the world. <laughs> did you have a moment? Like, did you have a sort of pivotal moment when you were like, you know what, I'm not being who I want to be? Yeah, yeah. Um, the pivotal moment was, shoot, it's in that Grace Noun thing, and you, you, it's hard to forget a pivotal, pivotal moment when blood is pouring down your face in your backyard. I had gone on the radio angrily about something I'd written and somebody in DC had me on Washington DC had me on about something I'd written about Gary Williams at the time. And, and, and L with the NC state coaching search, they couldn't find a replacement for, I was Herb Sendak or whoever it was. They couldn't find a replacement. The, the search ended up with Mark Gottfried. I think they were being sabotaged left and right. And, and I thought that Gary Williams wasn't helping them or I forget, but I went on the radio and just went off and turns out my boss at CBS went to Maryland and I knew that. But he heard about what I'd said, and that was the phone call when he said, "You know, if this happens again with you, um, it's not going to happen again. You're going, you're, you're fired." You know, and I'm, I'm a, at that point, I'm a young father. I'm still a father. I'm, I'm, I'm a dad. I'm the single bread earner in my family, and like I got people depending on me. And I went to the back, and I, and I've have hated this side of me for years, but I keep doing this crap. I went in the backyard. We have a, a tree back there, one of many. But I went, I went against a tree and just started banging my head against the tree until I'm bleeding. And at that moment, I made a lot of changes. Uh, I mean, I went to the doctor and asked for, like, is my medication okay? And do I need to stop working out every day? Because I was working out every day. Like, I was almost an addicted workout guy. And so I, is my testosterone, you know, too high? Um, I started volunteering somewhere just to get out of my own head. You know, not to be a great guy and to brag to you six years later as I volunteer, but just let me do something for somebody besides me. And uh, that was that was the turning point. I almost immediately from that started started finding different stories to write. Much harder stories, by the way. My old at CBS, man, I'd wake up at seven thirty a.m. or well, actually five a.m. with my kids, take them, get them to school, whatever. Come home at seven, read the internet for about an hour. That's about how long it would take to stumble across something that pissed me off in Oregon and Rhode Island, wherever. And at nine o'clock, I'm pissed off. By nine forty-five, I've written a thousand words and I'm done for the day. And that was an easy job. Uh, writing about things that actually matter is a little bit harder, but it's a lot. I feel I can sleep better at night. Well, why do you think we are so um, drawn to the fire of outrage than we are to the heartwarming story of whatever a twelve-year-old quarterback in Pop Warner who gave his kidney to a teammate? Blah 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 blah. Like we are immediately drawn to the outrage, to the loud take, to the scream, to the yell, to this guy sucks, this guy's blah blah blah. Like, what is that about us? Well, because we want to hate something. We're drawn to that because we want to hate it. Now, whether we want to hate the topic, like if, if I'm ripping Chip Kelly at Oregon, whatever I wrote, I stand by whatever I wrote, but I, but I would get angry at that. And so readers either A, love the fact that Chip Kelly's getting ripped. And so they're, they're piling on because yeah, or they're, they hate me for writing it. And so they're piling on me. Either way, the emotion that people love to tap into more than anything, and it's the easiest one. Lord knows I did it for 15 years. Is anger is so much easier to tap into. It's like it takes more, I think I say it takes more muscles to frown than smile or whatever that analogy is. And I'm butchering it. it it's just easier to, to get angry than to get happy. I will say this though. If you're doing a national job like I was and you've got the entire country that you can maybe tap into, 
because you can wear people out with your angry shtick, but there's still 49 other states that'll, that'll read you. That is an easier way probably to get clicks. But when you're in the local market, they don't want to read anger three or four times. They don't want to read it. And I don't want to write it. But around here, when I write something angry about something, it, it does okay, I guess. But when I write something about, like I went to uh, a local inner city school last week and the about 12 Colts showed up on their off day and built a playground for this really poor school. And I was there and watched it and wrote about it. People love that stuff. And I love writing that stuff. I had a moment when I was in college at the University of Delaware and I wrote a column. They had a longtime soccer coach named Lauren Klein, men's soccer. And I called for him to be fired because the team wasn't good. I'd never seen the team play. I'd never talked to Lauren <laughs> Klein. I'd never shown up at a practice. I literally had never seen the team play. And I called for him to be fired. And I remember the reaction initially was like, some of the players are like, yeah, man, thanks for writing that. And, you know, I've, you know, whoa, Pearl, that's ballsy and blah, blah, blah. And like, it took me years before I actually wrote him an apology. Because I think there's a certain addictive quality to people telling you, man, that was badass. Man, that was great. Man, blah, blah, blah. That you need to get past if you want to be actually good at this job. You think you're ballsy for calling for the guy to be fired. And, and, and years later, you realize, and of course, now you're painfully aware that that wasn't ballsy at all. That was, right. that was easy. In fact, you're playing to the crowd. And, and Twitter can, and in my case, did, doesn't anymore, but did make it worse because you write something angry about Chip Kelly or, or Lane Kiffin or whatever. And yeah, a lot of people are mad at you, but a lot of people are like, yeah, preach it, blah, 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 blah. And, and it just feels if you're weak, which I was, of course, you weren't dealing with Twitter back at Delaware, but if you're weak, you kind of go along with it. And I, I see it happening in other people. And there's, there's a guy in my market that it happens with right now. And I just not going to name a name. I shouldn't even say this much, but, but I've told him you're, you're, you're letting the crowd stoke you into a rage. And that's not who you are. Don't do that. And he's not listening to me. And, his popularity is going down and that's the way it goes. Right. I actually, it's kind of funny. I, um, as much as I'm not a fan of Donald Trump, I get why he loves Twitter so much because it's reinforcing everything he wants to say and the anger sort of gets people going. So I actually do get it, you know? Well, the, the world looks at a Facebook post isn't a good Facebook post unless it's got X number of likes and a Twitter, you know, Twitter, a tweet isn't good unless it's got X number of retweets and favorites and even responses. We just all want a response, and yeah, it, it feeds into the. There's something psychological there. Maybe maybe a study's been done. I'm not sure, but if it hasn't been done yet, it will be done on just what what psychological like what chemical craving in certain brains really kind of demands that instant feedback because people that need it go find it. They go find it somewhere. Um, and but the thing about Trump is that there's no way he's reading it because if he if he actually read what people smart people and, and smart people. I guess, like him, I mean, I guess, but, and a lot of smart people don't like him. And they, I'll, every now and then I'll look at one of his tweets only so I can see, you know, the most popular responses, which are always just blowing them up. Um, done smartly by smart people. It's when smart people tell you you suck, as I'm sure has happened to you over the years and happens to me every now and then too, a lot more back in the day. That, that's when it hurts. So like, it doesn't hurt. People ask me, how is your, your skin so thick? Because people, blah, blah, blah. Well, cause most of them are idiots, you know, and most of them are in New England. And they love the Patriots. And like right now, I had a tweet a couple of days ago about New England and, and I'm, my, my mentions are still a, a dumpster fire, but they're all idiots and they're, they're spoken stupidly. And if you go back and look and, and I hate to play this, this card, but it, it says something. Every single one of them has an anonymous name yep. about, you know, the Patriots are good and they all have less than 10 followers. Right. And no following followers doesn't necessarily equal whatever. But when, when I'm getting attacked by a million people and they all have seven followers, 
Well, you're all idiots. But it's when a smart person comes after you, that's when it hurts. Are you able to, because um, I am not, like, uh, whenever I do something uh, that comes off and that I immediately regret on social media and people pile on, I do not enjoy it. Like, I think there are some people who just don't care or some people who actually lather in this sort of negativity. Um, I hate it. Like, I hate it. I'll be like, I need to get off Twitter for two days because I do not like hearing this over and over again about myself. Are you okay with it? Oh, gosh, we, we certainly do sound like very parallel. Yeah, I, I hate it, too. I, I think I used to kind of like it, um, or at the very least, I'd get angry about it, and I'd lash back like, oh, you think you're right? Let me, you know, one of us is going to have the last word, and I, I'd be here all night. Biatch. You know, that's right. how it used to be. Now it's, I'm, I'm like you. If I say something right or wrong, but especially wrong, or especially maybe just and wrong for me is just means too harsh, too mean, not fair enough. Uh, I, I get off Twitter for a couple of days. And even now, because I came here to Indianapolis determined to answer everybody. If you email me, if you send me a handwritten letter, however you contact me, if you email me, you'll get an email back. Send me a handwritten letter, you get a handwritten letter back. If you tweet me, you're going to tweet back. Determined to do that. And a couple of years ago, it changed. And so I almost don't look at my mentions. Like I almost just don't look, which, yeah. is, which is a shame because a lot of people are saying nice things. And I want, and every now and then I'll go on and take a look and, and send a few, few back because I don't want to be like, I'm not, a, I'm not better than anybody. I'm what I am is fragile and fragile in a, in a very self flagellating way. Like I don't care what you say about me, but I care what I've done to myself. And I just, I don't even want to look anymore at, at, at the feedbacks because it's just more ammunition to beat myself up. It's so interesting. I really think we are at the same place, which is you start somewhere where you're young and cocky and you think this stuff is really important. And then you get older and you realize it's no more important than anything else. And then tell me what did the rocker thing do to your ego? Ah, that's interesting. I think it, um, I was really embarrassed. Like I was really embarrassed when that happened. Um, I did not enjoy the process afterwards. So, so had you, are you telling me that you'd already kind of, cause we have your epiphany, whatever you matured. So you're telling me that was the, the more mature Jeff Perlin. That wasn't the one craving, you know, the cheap seat feedback. Yeah. I think at that point I was, um, cause I, I, I was really bad at the Tennessean and Nashville early in my career. Then I got to Sports Illustrated. And when you were at SI and you were young at SI, you really had to eat a lot of shit, like not in a bad way, but you were, you were checking facts. I mean, my first sure. job was as a reporter checking facts and it's clawing for stories. So by the time I think I was sort of finding myself around that rocker time. And when it, I did not feel comfortable being part of the story. You know, when you write a story and you put it out there and then all of a sudden, uh, you have all these people calling you and you go to a game and the ESPN cameras were pointed at me and you're, I, um, that was not a good moment for me. That was a bad moment for me, but probably an important moment for me to realize I didn't really want that. Okay, well, and I'm glad that happened then after you kind of had grown up a little bit, to, to, if I can be harsh and say that, because had you not, had you still been young, had you been me 10 years ago, you'd have relished in that and you'd have, and all you'd done is made it 10 times worse. Because right. this is why I tell high school and colleges is that if you, cause, cause that was a successful story, you know, you had, I mean, it, it got sure. attention and, and rightly so. And I mean, you'd done, you'd done good work. And at that point, all you can do is screw it up because you, you've already won. The world now wants to see how you can lose. And so I tell people, I don't care if you're the best looking kid in your class, if you're the best dresser, if your, your family has the most money, you're the best writer, you're the best basketball player, whatever you're good at, the world knows you're good at it. They're waiting to see you fail. Don't give them a reason. But don't you also think like there comes a point when you realize it's like 
I always say the difference between Shaq and Kobe, because I've been working on a book about that, is like Kobe was never in on the joke and Shaq always was. You were so far better off being in on the joke where you realize like you're going to get paid, Greg, this Sunday to go sit in a, at a, and watch a football game and then you're going to write about it and then you can go home. Like that's your job. That is preposterous. Like I get paid to write books and I'll do this book and I'll hang, hang out, go to Atlanta and interview Shaq and then I'll fly home. It's like a joke. And the idea of being cocky about that or feeling special or entitled, it's so freaking off the reservation. That's what I don't get about myself as a young, like, what are you cocky about? It's not, a, it's a joke that you get to do this. I think the happiest spot to be in is to be almost a lack of self-awareness. I think that's the happiest spot to be in. And I think, well, I mean, now Shaq, if he's along with a the joke, then that's a happy spot too. But Kobe, I suspect Kobe in his own whatever mania that drives him, and I know going back to, you know, back when I was kind of lost in my own ways, I was happier back then than I am now. Cause when you, well, that's a mouthful to say out loud. That's but when you, yeah. yeah, but, and I've got the, I've got the, the therapy appointments and medication to prove mm -hmm. it, I guess. But, but well, the more self aware you are, and this is going to sound terrible. Um, and I don't mean this terribly, but I, had, yep. I envy folks that are folks that are really, really spiritual. I know exactly what you mean. I know exactly what you mean. I agree with you 100%. I, I want that so much. I want that yep. so much. And that's, I, I'm going off the reservation here. That's not a lack of self-awareness at all. The point is when you're just so focused on one thing that it makes you happy, you find peace in it. And my peace for years was my anger. I had peace in it. Like I, I was never questioning who I was or this, you know, I was successful at being mad and let's go. But it's when you, and Kobe, I'm sure Kobe is just so damn driven. That he's happy, you know, and, and, and Shaq is so goofy. He's happy. It's the people that are kind of in the middle. They're kind of the see it, see all of it, uh, realize just how hard this damn life is. And it's discouraging. Right. It's really funny, Greg. Every now and then I'll write something and someone very devoutly Christian will say, you're just searching for an answer. You want the tranquility that God provides. And I'm like, yeah, I do. I just know I'm never going to find it because I don't believe it. Like, of course I do. Like, if you could tell me right now, you're going to die and you're going to go in a cloud and everything's going to be great and blah, 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 pff, sign me up. I just don't believe it, but I would take it. Yeah, I want that. And I'm, I'm still looking that way. And, and, and I'm, and I've, I've gone up and down and this, we're slinging yang about other stuff now, but I've gone up my, my spiritual walk, as I say, it's, it's gone up and down and, uh, I'm, I'm trying to creep up and I am creeping up a little bit. So because I, who doesn't want that peace, right? Who doesn't want that? I, right. You know, I, I not just wanted, I, I, there are days I need it. There are days I'm in trouble if I don't find it. Like I'm worried about what's going to happen in three weeks if I don't find that thing today. So I'm, I'm always looking. The one thing about this, about this job, it's kind of torturous because you're in your head a lot. I feel like this is a universal truth among people who do this for a living is there's a certain level of, uh, self mutilation and torture because you're just in your head a ton and these kind of things come along for the ride. Oh gosh, I, the best feeling in the world is to, is to finish the story and be done. The worst feeling in the world is 30 seconds later when you realize that story sucks. And then, <laughs> and then it's a good feeling. Then the next morning, uh, when enough time passes, maybe you slept, you realize, Oh, it doesn't suck. Uh, not saying it's great or whatever, but I didn't embarrass myself because I, every Colts game, I, especially home games, cause I'm driving home. I am miserable driving home. Like I'm thrilled when I file it in the press box. I'm thrilled. I'm done. And then I go to my car, drive home. I'm miserable on the drive home. And I tweet out the story, but I don't read it because I don't want to see it. 
So I, there might be typos in there. I'm not finding them because I'm not looking at it. I'll look at it the next morning in print and, uh, oh, that you didn't just utterly depants yourself in front of the public like you thought you did last night. So yeah, that, that's just the, the that's the scale. That's the, uh, what do you call it? That's the, the track that I, I have when I write a story. So funny. My daughter is this, my daughter's 16 and we were driving to Iowa to school today. She was making fun of me because I recently handed in a book and my editor said he liked it. And I said to my daughter, I was like, Oh, maybe the book isn't that bad. And she just started laughing because this is my, my process is I hand in the book. I know it sucks. I never want to read it again. I hate it. I hate it. It sucks. It's the worst book I've ever written. This sucks. My career's over. The editor says, Hey, I liked it. Oh, maybe it's pretty good. I guess it's okay. Like, what the hell is that, Greg? It, it's, it, it doesn't take much to convince us that it doesn't suck because we want to believe we, we need more than anything. We need to believe that we don't suck because if you suck at books and I suck at writing, then I got nothing else. I mean, the, yeah. like my, and I, and I, I mean, you, you've got your kid. I've got two kids. I've, I've got other stuff, but. But I identified so much. We we identify so much because this job is such a. You, I mean, you put yourself out there. You know, people are reading you, and and they can reach out to you and mock you, and so you better believe in yourself, or that's a hard spot to be in. So it doesn't take much. Okay, I don't suck. We because we want to believe it. The problem is is that we need to. Someone needs to tell us, or we need to tell ourselves after we read it. After enough time passes, that we don't suck. I can only imagine, and I can't imagine you because uh, like I get to write every day, and and almost every day. And I couldn't even imagine doing once a week at SI or anywhere else, but I can't imagine a book a year or whatever. Uh, Cause if you don't feel good about it, I mean, it's not, you know, a starting pitcher has to wait five days for the next start, but a closer gets to go back the next day. So I hope, I hope you get a good reason to feel good about your books right away. Cause man, that'd be a hard year. Have you ever had a book that you couldn't be convinced wasn't that you thought sucked and no one could tell you otherwise. And you had an entire year to sit on it and stew. Uh, I thought I wrote a Roger Clemens biography and I never loved it and it got really good reviews and I just couldn't be convinced that it was, and now it's selling for like a nickel on Amazon where it probably belongs. So, uh, <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not the worst thing ever, but it's, yeah. I mean, don't you write columns? Don't you write com Do you write columns where you hand it in, you don't feel good about it. And then you still don't feel good about it. And you sort of, do you ever have regret? Like you feel like I miss an opportunity to write something really good right there. All the time, and it's almost always actually after after Colts games, uh, because the, these games. And I, Bill Plaskett gave me some good advice one time back in LA a couple of years ago because he'd been doing this obviously for years, and and I asked him, "How do you do this?" Because these games all feel like Armageddon. There's only 16 of them, and every game, I want to do a state of the, state of the union address after every game. Here's what it means, mm-hmm. and and when you look at that big big picture, here's what it means. And by the way, his advice, real quick, was to decide what you think it means. Go back and look through the game and find a moment that, that that illustrates what it means, and lead with that. And then once you're yeah. once you're once you start your story, you're off and running. And that's kind of what I've done ever since. And I really appreciate that advice so much. But um, when you try to write big picture, and I tell myself don't do it, but I always when the game ends and it feels like Armageddon, I write big picture. I then drive home and think, you know, you you know the the, the linebacker did this, this, and this, or the kicker did this, and I I missed a chance to write a really good story. Because I thought I had to, you know, do the swinging uh, Johnson and just write the big picture. When you're sitting there in the press box during a Colts game, uh, how much are you paying attention to the game? How much are you sort of, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to focus on whoever, T.Y. Hilton. And now I have to spend half the time figuring everything out that I want to write about T.Y. Hilton. I'm one of the few guys that actually keeps play by play. So I, I write down every play 
in my little shorthand. And if there's a description about the play that I think might matter in a story the next day, I then describe it in a couple words. And I'm, by the time I'm done writing, they're snapping the ball again. So no, I, I, I don't laser in on something. I think I'm, I'm better at and I enjoy more. And I certainly feel like I'm better at whether I am or not is basketball games, college or pro, because you're, you sit closer up in the football press box with, the, with a few exceptions. Um, really no exceptions. You're always closer in basketball and they're not wearing helmets and you can actually see facial expressions and, and you can just see it's so much more visceral. A football game, it almost looks like you're watching a movie from up above. It's, it's not even real. It just looks like, uh, almost a video game unfolding before your eyes. Basketball, those are human beings doing human being things. And it allows me to then focus on one little bitty thing that I just saw and wear that little thing out. Whereas football, I'm just watching 22 guys wearing helmets. I don't, you can't see their faces. Before we continue with two writers slinging yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my sister-in-law, Jessica, all the way from New York City. So Jessica, what's your biggest complaint about living in Manhattan? Honestly, there's nowhere to get a bite to eat. Really? Yeah, there's no nightlife, everything closes by nine. Wow, that is tough. And worst of all, there's no place to buy clothing. Seriously? Yes. I mean, there's Bloomingdale's and Macy's and Saks Fifth Avenue. There's Coach, Versace and Chanel, Tom Ford and Tory Burch. But sometimes... Sometimes what? Sometimes you just want to wear a throwback Ken Hobart Denver gold jersey. A blue one with gold trim. Know what I mean? I do. That's why I buy all my throwback sports merchandise at 503 Sports. Kings of the throwback sports memorabilia. They have t-shirts, jerseys, hats from all different defunct sports leagues. All you got to do is go to 503-sports.com. It's amazing. Maybe they'll open up a storefront on Fifth Avenue? Yeah, maybe. It's interesting. When you when you jumped to Indianapolis, there was a lot of, um, if you look online, at, you know, places at the time, sportsjournalist.com and crappy rumor sites like that. It was almost confusion. It was like, wait, this guy is going from a national job to a paper in the Midwest at a time when newspapers are sort of not at their best. Was there at all a sort of, did you have to? Um, are, are you wondering if I like doubted my decision when I saw all the confusion? I guess I'm more interested in how did you come to the decision and were you at all sort of, do you have to say to yourself, okay, this is a new point in my life. I am adjusting my ego. I am adjusting my expectations. I don't want to be this anymore. I want to be this. Well, the the way the way I'm uh, you know wired, I don't sometimes know what I think about some topic until somebody asks me. So a lot of times I get my column ideas, certainly back at CBS when I had more of a national scope. I got my column ideas based on I do a radio interview with somebody and I'd I'd blurt out a sentence and go, huh, that's what you think about that, huh? And then that'd be a column. Um, well, when when the Star Job opened up in mid 2014, summer 2014, Bob Kravitz was here and he went to work for a TV station writing on their website. I saw it on Twitter, and my first reaction was, I hope Indianapolis calls me. And my second reaction was to just kind of look around and think, who said that? Because I, I had never dreamed I wanted to be a newspaper columnist. It just didn't occur to me. I, I was so locked into what I was doing, I wasn't thinking about anything else. So that's how, when I realized, oh, you want to be there, huh? Who knew? Um, you didn't know until it happened. So I, that's just what I wanted. I, I wanted to get away from me. I wanted to get away from the national stuff. I wanted to get away from hot takes. What I wanted more than anything, what I suspected was, um, and this is going to sound awful here. I've been trying to spend 30 minutes convincing you that, that my ego is not so huge. But um, what I know is that when I'm around people for a while, they, they tend to like me. But I kind of, maybe I got to grow on you like mold. What I, what I, but what I also know is that if all you do is read one hot take of mine, you're going to think I'm the biggest a hole in the world. And, and I might, at that moment I am. 
So I, I, what I decided, I think in that moment was I need, I need readers that are going to have no choice really, but to read me three or four times a week. And like mold, like kudzu in Mississippi where I grew up, I'll grow on them and they'll decide they kind of like me. But at CBS, I'm just this heel and I don't know how to stop. And it was like this naked Wimbledon thing, streaker thing. Like I, here's some, cause CBS is not ESPN, not Yahoo, you know, not, not whatever was big back then. Um, if you wanted attention at CBS, you had to light your hair on fire and run around naked. And I was your guy. And I just was so tired of doing that. And then he started, came along and, and plus I loved the town, loved the town, had a good friend of mine was actually dying of ALS living in AL in, in Greenwood, Indiana, where I live now. Um, so it just, it all added up right for me. I have found it harder as I get older to care about teams that I used to care for. Is it hard to regularly give a crap about the Indianapolis Colts? What I care, what, what's not hard for me, and, and it's, it's really weird, but it kind of goes back to what I was saying about Levitard, Miami earlier. A good friend of mine, uh, well, I'll say her name, Candace Buckner. She says to me, you know, she calls me the, the champion of Indianapolis sports. And by champion, she doesn't mean the best, the winner. She means I, I have their back. And, and that's not hard for me, uh, because I, I, I do want to be here, feel home here. I, I've moved around a lot in my life and, have lived in a lot of places because it just you know I kind of had to go to this job. I kind of had to go there. My job, whatever. This is the first place where I just went because I wanted to go. And I also got divorced, and so I was able to. I was more flexible. But I, I I went running to this job, so I appreciate that, and I appreciate the city. And whether they appreciate me or not, it doesn't matter. I I am never bored with uh, knowing that that I'm speaking, whether they want me to or not. I'm speaking for a whole fan base, and so no, I'm not bored with. What you're talking about because I don't really care. I don't care how good Jacoby Brissett is. What I care is what what do the people around here think about it, and I want to write about that. So do you, or um, or, like, or write write in a way that write in a way that holds up a mirror so they can know what to think about what they care about. How about that, Andrew Luck? You know, Andrew Luck suddenly retires. It got, you know, it's reported by Adam Schefter. It comes out, blah blah blah. Huge news, nuclear news around the country as far as football goes. Um, are you immediately on it? Does that even make sense? Does it work that way? Do you hop in the Batmobile and drive off? Like, is there some, I got to do this oh, right now. You, oh, you don't, oh, you'll, you'll understand this. You, you don't, you don't know what happened. You don't know how it happened. Exactly. The Colts were in the third quarter. It was, it was a, it was a nightmare. It was a nightmare. And you wouldn't know, actually, softy, you've never had nightly deadlines. I realize SI <laughs> once a week had terrible deadlines. That, that part I get, but, but I'm, they're, they're playing the Bears. It's the third quarter. I've written, and because it's a preseason game and nobody who matters plays after the second quarter, I was like two-thirds of the way done with my column, and I don't even remember what I was writing about. Oh, Chad Kelly. I was writing about another quarterback, Chad Kelly, and how he looked really good in the second quarter, and I kind of get why he's here, blah, blah, blah. I've written almost 900 words, and this tweet comes out from Schefter, or people are talking about it, that Luck is retired, and my first thought is, please, God, let that be someone hacked his account. Any moment now that we're going to find out that they hacked his account, that's not real, because I can't deal with this. I can't deal with this at 9.30. I can't do it. But sadly, it was a real tweet. It was a real account. And yeah, I was on it because I was in the damn press box when it happened and and knew, knew, because I'm not a complete moron, that this is about the biggest story I'm going to write in this town in a long, 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 long time. Maybe ever, but maybe not. And I've got exactly 45 minutes to write it in print while the people from The Athletic and whoever else, they're going to write it. They, they got more time. In fact, the guy from The Athletic, one guy, Left the press box that night at 4 a.m. That's when he left the press box. Well, my story was due by 11:15, and that you know tried that at home, kids. And right, so, what does your brain? 
I'm actually being serious as best you can. Like, all right, you get this news. You have 45 minutes to write it. What is going on in your head? I had less than 45 because I actually had to run down. Luck spoke. Game ends. I run down with my laptop and Luck is going to speak to us. And so our, our saying, Chris Ballard, the, the GM and the owner and the head coach, I think Frank Reich. And so my laptop's down there and I, and, and I don't like people looking over my shoulder, even if they're not looking. And I realize they're probably not in the moment. I think you're all looking and I can't write my own byline if I think you're looking. So I'm sitting off in the corner in this press conference room with my back. Basically, my back is to two walls. You can't look over my shoulder because there's nobody there but cinder blocks. And I'm composing a column as I'm waiting for Luck to talk. And then Luck talks for, for however long and I run out of there and go write the rest of it. How do you even know what to write in that quick of a span? How am I going to address this? Well, actually, I almost wrote two columns about that damn thing because my first initial column was really lecturing Luck. Like, are you sure you want to do this? And this is wrong for you. And, and, and I actually, I wrote about me in there some and said some things that I couldn't believe I was saying about myself, uh, about I understand wanting to quit. And, uh, heck, I even said, and people who know me know this, so I guess it's okay. I, I said, there, there are times where I want to quit this world. And, but I don't because, you know, tomorrow's coming. So. You know, I worried for luck that he was quitting too soon and that this is, there's a psychological component to this. And what are you doing? And then he sat there and, and then I sat there and listened to him. He talked and I realized, okay, everything I've been written with cinder blocks looking over my shoulders is wrong because luck is not where I thought he was. And so my entire story changed to let me just describe what I saw. So long story short, that story was too big to have an opinion. Honestly, it was too big to have a real opinion in that moment. So what I did was let me just let me a sports editor at Charlotte Observer, Mike Persinger told me, 1999 or 2000 take readers a place they can't go. And so I took him into that press conference room. And while luck is talking, I'm looking at Jim Irsay. And while luck is talking, I'm looking at Chris Ballard. And while luck is talking, I'm looking at his wife and I'm just describing what, what this nuclear bomb looked like for this franchise through other people's eyes, I guess. That's really interesting. But I'm sorry, but it's, it's just easier. It, it takes the pressure off. I don't have to write what I think. I don't have to be deep. Let me just, just uh, describe some stuff for you, dismount with a kicker and put 30 on the end. You know, what's really mature about that is I'm sure in your younger days. And if I were covering it in my younger days, I would be like, I need to have a take. This is great. Yes. This is terrible. Why is he doing this? He should be doing this, blah, blah, blah. And you, through your experience in life, kind of had the maturation to pull back. Yeah. I, I've decided a while ago and Twitter's helped me because I look at Twitter and I kind of cringe. I look at the people, um, people that I like and respect, but we all kind of get sucked into, I need, I need to have an opinion about this and about this and about this and about this. And you could, on Twitter, you can write, you know, 50 columns, you know, in, in, in an hour because you're at 50, 50 little tweets. And I just, I don't think the world cares that much about what I think. Uh, so every now and then if I feel something strongly, like when the Colts tried to hire Josh McDaniels and I just couldn't believe it. Old, old CBS Greg came out for about a thousand words in that one and just couldn't, couldn't understand why they would hire Josh McDaniels. And then two weeks later, that little, that little creep proved me right by backing out a little, little weasel. But, um, by and large, I don't think anybody really cares what I have to say. So instead, let me show you, let me, let me get my opinion across, but let me do it in a way that shows you here's what you don't see. Here's what I see. And oh, by the way, as an aside, here's what I think about what I see. Actually, it's funny. I just Googled. You have a uh, column. Josh McDaniels is a selfish little jerk. <laughs> Which funny. one was that? Because I wrote the day he got hired. I ripped, I'm sorry. The day they the, the word leaked, they were hiring him. I ripped the Colts for hiring him. 
And then two weeks later, when he backed out, I ripped him for backing out. So, oh my God, this is a great lead. See, this is a great lead. This is a little bit old school. I got to say, the headline is Josh McDaniels is a selfish little jerk who did Colts India favor. And your lead is <laughs> be embarrassed, Indianapolis Colts, but also be relieved. Josh McDaniels is a punk and a loser, but he's not your punk. He's not your loser. He's not your head coach. Thank God. <laughs> it's pretty good. <laughs> I just, I, I just blasted him for a thousand words. That felt so good. You know, cause when you know you're right, not only do you know you're right, but you know you're right, and I'm sticking up for the city and the state that was reeling and reeling and reeling. That just felt really good. There's there's a time and place for anger. There's a time and place when you the moral mm-hmm. high ground, you have it, and you're right to exercise it. The problem with people like us earlier in our day is we exercised it all the time when we had no right, and it loses its power, and, and it's a little bit embarrassing to look back. But But about once a year, maybe there's a time and place for it. And Josh McDaniels will always be the time. He'll always be the place. And I'm gonna have to fight myself not to not to rip him again when he gets hired by whoever gets hired in three years by somebody. I'm gonna have to rip, you know, don't, don't rip that team because you're not writing for those readers. But I'm gonna want to rip him then too. Right. For my uh, for my own entertainment, let me throw a final question at you. Um, yeah, I've I've got rockers so you threw that at me. What's your best or most memorable confrontation you have had with a subject in your career? Oh wow. Okay. Um, well, Bobby Bonilla threatened to kill me one time. In a thing that would have gone, you know, viral had viral existed, had happened in New York, but it happened. I'm covering the Marlins. That was no big deal. You can't let that go. What happened? Well, me being stupid, um, I'm covering spring training in '97. Benny's there and he's walking to the clubhouse. And he's got his kid, two year old kid, maybe riding piggyback, sitting on his shoulders. You know, he's carrying around the clubhouse. And Benny is, you know, happily talking to people, but cursing every third word. Every third word's a curse. And so I just kind of, as a throwaway line with no judgment, just, you know, here's something, you know, by Benia walking through, sing-songing curses with his, you know, two-year-old on his shoulders, something like that, and just kept going. Didn't think I'd done anything. Benia came the next day, you know, if you're right about my kid again, right about my family again, I'm going to kill you. Um, wow. and, and I guess he, he was embarrassed that he was cursing with his two-year-old. I'm sure his, his, the, the baby's mom or somebody, you know, like Bobby, really, you're doing that with your with kid on your shoulders. But that wasn't the good one. The, the best one was, um, for me, well, one time Chris Lytle, the former UFC fighter, said he was going to punch me so hard I was going to crap myself. But the best one was Ken Griffey and Adam Dunn when they were with the Reds. And I was I had a really bad, and people listening now understand why, a bad radio show I was on in Cincinnati. And they were these just useless, washed-up, aging, softball league slugging veterans, lazy. And I called them on it like every day. And, and I'd go in the clubhouse once a week just – to do the old, you know, the masculine, I'm not afraid, you know, I just, yeah. just to be there. And, and I don't know which one did it. One of them threw a water bottle that exploded right next to me. I looked over my shoulder. It was Dunn and Griffey both looking at me. One of them did it. The other one, the other time, and I don't know if it was Dunn or Griffey, so I'm going to blame both of them on this one. One of them had a baseball stocking with two or three baseballs shoved in there. So, you know, if you, if you swing it, it's a weapon, right? Um, and he, was holding it and, and I forget. I, I asked him a question. I said something to him. He goes, you know what I'd really like to do? And I think it was Adam Dunn. He goes, what I'd really like to do is I'd really like to hit you with this as he's holding this sock with baseballs in there. Wow. So those are, and the, the, and people hear that and they think some people do anyway is aren't you scared or whatever? And no, because please do. I, I boxed for years and I can take a shot and I understand that being that pain's not that big a deal, but I also understand I'll retire tomorrow if you hit me with that thing. Like, please, know. you know, I don't, I, and I don't force competitions, but people ask about, doesn't that shake you up? No, because that's $20 million. Please hit me. Do you think that accountability, that sort of, 
I mean, the reason I got a confrontation with Rocker actually was because a year later or six months later, I, I felt sort of compelled to go back because you're supposed to show your face and you would go in the Reds right. clubhouse. Um, number one, is that a, do you feel like that is an antiquated approach to covering sports and do you still feel it is necessary? Um, I, well, no, it, it, it's not antiquated. It is necessary. Yeah. Because if you don't do it, if you don't go back in every now and then, you're that little kid at Delaware firing a coach that you've never even met before. And it's just, yeah. it, it needs to be hard. It needs to be hard. Like, how strongly do I feel that Chuck Pagano should be fired? Do I feel strong enough that I'm going to show up tomorrow when he looks at me with those sad puppy dog eyes? Because if I feel, if I feel that strongly about it, then I'm going to actually look him in the face tomorrow. I better write it tonight. If I don't feel so strongly about it that I'm not going to, I'm, I'm not willing to look at him tomorrow, then don't write it tonight. So I think that matters very much. The one thing I'll say about it in the negative is that a lot of times all that does is cause problems. And I'm trying to think, I, I, I've done this. This happened so many times. I came and say, say, well, okay, Jim Beheim. Jim Beheim, uh, after the, uh, Bernie Fine deal and he basically, Beheim attacked the accusers, called them liars. And maybe in hindsight, and I forget how that played out. Maybe in hindsight, the facts were on his side. I don't really remember. I think that, I think that's the way it worked out. But, but in real time, nobody knew. And in real time, what you can't do if you're the most powerful man in upstate New York is basically call out two potential sexual molestation victims and call them money grabbers. You can't do that. And he mm-hmm. did that, and I said he ought to be fired because I fired more people than Trump over the years, and it didn't work out then. But anyway, so about a year later, I'm at a press conference, and Beheim blew me up at a press conference and after a game. And I walked up to him afterwards and and said, hey, what you just did up there, is that is that because of what I wrote a year or two ago? And he said, yeah, as a matter of fact, it was. And, and it almost got ugly there, and there's just no point in that. Like Sometimes you, you show your face thinking you're being the big, bad, tough guy, and all you're doing is – is sticking a stick in someone's eye. There's no need for that. The other thing I really do think I've learned over the years is it doesn't mean you don't call for people to be fired. It doesn't mean you don't call for people to be punished, banned, et cetera. But I do try to remind myself in all circumstances, like Jim Beheim, as big a deal as he is, as powerful as he is in sports, like, you know, he has a wife, he has kids, he has a mortgage. He has like all these people have things beyond, like we only see them in this tiny little cylinder. And they actually have lives outside of it. And I do try to remind myself of that, if nothing else. Yeah, because they they seem larger than life and they're not human. And yet they are human. And I try to remind myself of that as well. But I also try to remind myself that no, no matter what, no matter what they're going through, you need to make sure and whatever, whatever you think they deserve, make sure whatever you think about them stands the test of time. Because we all get fired up about something. And mm-hmm. then three weeks later, you look back and go, yeah, I probably shouldn't have written that. So that's my biggest thing now. When I, when I have a hot take on the tip of my tongue, I think to myself, is this going to stand the test of time? In three months, will I be ashamed of this? And so I've, I've talked myself off the mini ledges that way. Well, Greg, this is one of my favorite episodes of all time. This has been, it's like speaking into a mirror. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like so sorry for you, Jeff. I'm yeah. so, I, I feel so bad for you that you feel and that way. And the same for you. <laughs> uh, it has, yeah. been, it has been fun. And it's weird because, uh, real quickly, just someone like you that, you know, I, I know who you are and I've read you, but I've never talked to you. It's very interesting and, and neat and, and frankly flattering that we're similar in so many ways. Even if the ways we're similar is dis- despicable, it's still nice. I want to thank today's guest, Greg Doyle, for joining me on Two Writers Sling and Yang. You can follow Greg on Twitter at Greg Doyle Star and read his work in the Indianapolis Star. This podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. You can visit the website at 503-sports.com. One can listen to Two Riders Sling and Yang on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, and reviews are always appreciated. Music is by the dazzling MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, 
keep riding. 